Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Will Kynes. And I'm Ronnie Cosman. And in this episode, we're looking at Matthew 8 to 11, and we're talking to Dr. Janine Brown. Dr. Janine Brown is the David Price Professor of Biblical and Theological Foundations at Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. She has written a number of books on various writings of the New Testament and on biblical uh, hermeneutics, that is, how to interpret the Bible, but also on the nexus of psychology, theology, and Christian formation. Janine is the author of this book, which I actually really love, uh, The Gospels as Stories, a narrative approach to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this, I think, is actually really helpful, especially for our conversation on a large stretch of text, right? Yeah. Chapters 8 through 11, where we have a bunch of these kind of seemingly disparate stories and thinking about how narratively we might find some kind of coherence mm -hmm. um, in telling the story. She's also uh, the author of a couple of commentaries on Matthew, including uh, this one. Uh, which is in the Two Horizons New Testament commentary, which she's written with Kyle Roberts. And she is also the editor of another important uh, book on the Gospels, uh, the Dictionary, IVP's Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels, which is a very helpful resource for those who are uh, trying to figure out things about the Gospels. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for joining us, Janine. I am so glad to be with you. So, Janine, what first drew you to studying the Gospels and the Gospel of Matthew in particular? Well, I grew up in a tradition where Paul was understood as theologian, and the Gospels just gave us history, mere history, only the facts, ma'am, kind of approach. Um, and in seminary, and then in my doctoral work, I kind of entered the rich world of the Gospels as theology or the gospel writers as theologians as well. And, and that made a huge amount of sense to me, especially as I started to read gospels in their entirety, rather than just little pieces and mm -hmm. pull one part from Mark and smush it against something in Matthew. And um, <laughs> so there, there's a sense that the theology of the gospels really uh, engaged me, invigorated my own work. And um Matthew in particular, I think I was really drawn to the use of the Old Testament in the Gospels, and you see mm -hmm. that kind of most visibly up front in Matthew, although I would argue all of the Gospel writers are alluding to, citing at various points uh, the Old Testament. There's a sense where Matthew, this was to fulfill, was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, and he has mm. a ton of these fulfillment quotations that are just very much telling you, here's where I get my source material. Mm -hmm. Great. Now, what for you is the most difficult to understand or interpret in these three chapters, 8 through 11? Yeah. Um, I think probably, I mean, 8 and 9 hang together really uh, sort of understandably. I mean, there are numbers of healings, mm -hmm. miracles, um, and chapter 10 is the commissioning of the 12. Uh, and that, you know, fits nicely again with uh, we see them being commissioned to do some things that Jesus is already doing. In, in actually starting in chapter 4 through uh, 9. But chapter 11 is this kind of, you could say it's a mishmash 
of Jesus' very teachings and interactions, interaction with John the Baptist starts it off, and there's some teaching on John the Baptist, and kind of what is there coherence there? Um, and I think what really we really see as we move in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, that 11 does set us off in a right direction for understanding what comes next. But it also revisits some things that comes before. So um, I think 11 and kind of figuring out how it functions and what the various shorter teachings of Jesus within it mean in that context, how they kind of come together. Mm-hmm. I think that's the hardest part for a lot yeah. of people and certainly for myself. Yeah. And so you've already touched on this, but these chapters here, eight to 11, we have all these different stories in these chapters. What role are they playing within the gospel of Matthew as a whole? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I always point students and, and folks back to four uh, chapter 4, 17, where we have the proclamation of the kingdom of God, the beginning of the Galilean ministry. And then in 4, 23 through 25, we have the summary of Jesus doing three things. He preaches, he heals, um, and he teaches. And that that uh, actually has a nice little uh, envelope or bookend in chapter 9, 35, those three things again. So we wouldn't be surprised to see that Jesus, between these two summaries, Teaching, I don't. I'm not getting in the right order, but teaching, healing, and preaching will be teaching, healing, and preaching. So, and that's what mm-hmm. we see in chapters five through nine. We see five through seven, Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching his disciples, and in eight and nine, he's um, healing. Uh, these are healing stories primarily. That you know, there, there's a miracle at sea as well. So there's wider set of miracles, but really the focus is on healing. So. Um, that very nicely kind of brings us to chapter nine. Then we have the commissioning of the, the 12 to do the preaching and healing ministry, not yet teaching, they get okay. teaching commissioned at the end of the gospel, but not in chapter mm. 10. And then in 11, we start to see all the varied responses to what Jesus is doing. We've seen some responses, of course, already in eight through nine, people who come in faith and are healed. People who are wondering about what's going on. Um, Jewish leaders are mm, not so sure. And then in 11, we start to hear more of a, uh, here are some of the responses to what Jesus is doing. And they're not all positive. Hmm. Well, let's uh, launch into these three chapters. And we can Four think. Four chapters, Ronnie. Eight and Oh, yes. <laughs> See, I think. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, none of us went into this, this field for math skills. I don't think. Right. I'm no I'm no mat- you know, my so. problem is I never count the first one. Oh, yeah, I know. Same problem. <laughs> All right. These four chapters, <laughs> 8 to 11. It's not 11 minus 8. That's not the math that we're supposed to be doing here. That's right. Okay. Right. But we can think of it uh, in this way. Ch- roughly speaking, the divisions don't work quite exactly along the uh, borders of the chapters. But uh, 8 and 9 as one section then 10, and then 11, just as Janine had mentioned. So let's begin with the first section, Matthew chapters 8 through 9. And these two chapters are filled with numerous miraculous deeds. Jesus heals a man with leprosy. He heals the Roman centurion's son or servant, perhaps. Uh, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus stops a storm. He heals two demon-possessed men and sends the demons into the pigs. He heals a paralytic. He heals the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. He raises a ruler's daughter from the dead. He heals two blind men and a demon-oppressed blind man. What is the purpose, Janine, of all of these miracle stories? Are there, like, persistent themes or theological threads that tie them together? 
Uh, yes, um, I think so. And I have a great story of, um, I was, when my kids were in third and fourth grade, I was filling in for a Sunday school teacher and we were doing um, uh, some text, some of the texts in, in Matthew eight. Mm-hmm. And I just decided we do the whole thing, right? You know, that's me. Let's do all of eight and nine. So we read through it and I had um, kids divided up. And one group was the um, Jesus and his power group. And the other was Jesus, uh, Jesus, a uh, faith in Jesus group. And every time they heard power or faith, they had to raise their hand. They had like a little, I don't know if they had a little something I had them put in their hand for those different themes. And they were just fabulous. And hearing these themes throughout the chapter, even mm-hmm. when they didn't hear the word power or faith, they would, oh, that sounds like faith. That sounds like power. And um, mm-hmm. those are two of the themes that are very prominent in these chapters. Jesus, Jesus's power, authority to heal, to do things, other miraculous things. And then faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus's power to heal. He can do these things. So those two mm. themes are these really prominent ones. And um, the the healing, we, I mentioned that there are a few miracles that go beyond healing, but um, the healing miracles that are so prominent are really summed up in chapter 817, where we hear uh, one of these fulfillment quotations. This was to fill, was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. So this idea of Jesus as healer, he has power and compassion to heal and he does it he takes some the the heal, the illnesses of his people upon himself somehow he doesn't Let, then become sick he actually takes them away yeah let's talk about that uh, fulfillment passage there and then maybe we can yeah. circle back and look at some other issues here uh so the passage that's being referred to there is Isaiah 53, verse 4, which says, mm-hmm. Surely he has borne our infir- infirmities and carried our diseases. So do you think that Matthew's fulfillment fits within the purview of what Isaiah means by those words in 53, chapter 53? I do. And here's how I see the line or the thread that connects. Um In Isaiah, all the way from chapter 42 through 53, we have what are often called the Isaiah servant songs or servant poems. Um, And there's lots of debate in Isaiah studies about how these hang together, what they do. But um, I think Matthew makes something of these various texts because he will allude to or quote Isaiah 42, chapter 12, long quotation, or um, Isaiah 53. So he uses these texts to say Jesus is this one who is the servant. Now, I think important in Isaiah, um, who is the servant? I certainly think, however you kind of answer the question granularly, in terms of the the bigger picture, Israel is the servant. Israel was Mm -hmm. to be a light to the nations. Israel was to fulfill that lovely text in 42, 1 through 4, um, to bring justice to the nations. Mm -hmm. Um, But the servant is not able to do that already Mm -hmm. in chapter 42 um, we hear, but this, the servant is unable to fill that role. So one comes from Israel to do that work. So that's why I understand Jesus filling this role in Isaiah 53, that this is the one representative of Israel who can do mm. this healing. And, um, and also, I mean, that's obviously Isaiah 53, we think about the suffering servant. He will go to death for his mm. people to bring them redemption. So, I see Jesus there, yes, but as a sort of the epitome of all that Israel was to do and the perfect Israelite, the representative one. Okay. So back now looking at these texts more generally, we've got a number of different characters 
that appear yeah. here in chapters eight and nine. Is there anything significant about them and the way in which they're presented to us? Um, yes. I mean, one thing that does tie them together is their, their trust that Jesus can help them. We hear this in the leper um, or the person with the skin disease, men with the skin disease. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing, you know, so there's this um, trust and faith. And then we hear it very explicitly with the centurion who trusts Jesus to heal his slave. I think it's probably slave from or servant from a distance. Even he doesn't have to come to his house. He's a Gentile. He knows Jewish people don't just waltz into Gentile houses without good reason. Uh, you don't have to do that. And then um, so we hear that theme repeated in chapters nine in chapter nine, 22, 22, 29. You hear the theme of faith. So. They are people that come from these Jewish crowds. These are primarily Jewish crowds. Now, the Roman centurion or the centurion is is a non-Jew. Um, it's the one mm-hmm. non-Jew in this whole passage, probably. Um, but they come in faith, so they have this theme of faith. But, you know, they, they're men. There are women. Uh, there's a lot of diversity as well. They have come with various ailments. So Jesus um, is doing this extraordinary healing, I think, Matthew wants us to hear the great variety of healings Jesus is able to do and willing to do, and that this is part of his mission. He mm. is that servant who will bear their diseases. So I think that's something that ties all of them together. What do you think of the, um, you know, of the woman who she says in nine verse uh well, in Numbers 20, read, then suddenly a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages mm-hmm. for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be made well. Do, do you think there's anything particularly significant about that? You know, why is she touching the fringe of his clothes? Like he's he's so powerful. He's got all this healing power coming out of him. I just need to touch the fringe. Or Are there other significances to this? Yeah. And uh, well, I mean, one thing that's interesting is you hear about the fringe here and also in chapter 15, that, that Jesus is wearing these tassels from numbers that are required for Jewish men to wear. I mean. One of the things we hear throughout Matthew is that Jesus is obedient to the Torah. He's just a Torah obedient yeah. Jew. So I think that's one piece that's sort of, I don't think it's Matthew's main point. I think he just sort of shows it because it, it was true, you know. Um, yeah. But but her faith is very, you know, it's an amazing faith to think I just, all I need to do is touch. I don't think she wants to necessarily get in the fray, you know. Yeah. Um, she's been maybe used to just kind of sitting outside of things and, um, staying out of the way. And so it's a great faith. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Um, there's this kind of amazing, compassionate, powerful picture of maybe her a little bit of fear with her faith. Mm. Great faith, but the sense of, I don't really need to even do much more. I don't have to bother this great mm. teacher. So it is kind of a powerful scene, isn't it? That yeah. Jesus heals and, and notices Mark heightens kind of the details, so we hear more of the details. He notices power has gone from him. We don't have that in Matthew. Matthew often shortens Mark's stories just because I think Matthew wants to communicate more stories. You know, he wants to right, add right, in right. all sorts of um, accounts that Mark doesn't have, and certainly a lot of teaching that Mark doesn't have of Jesus. Right. Is there, um, there's a text, I think it's in Malachi, right, where it says, and there's healing in his wings. Mm, is it, I think I've, heard, I've seen heard that connected. Uh, yeah, I think, that, yeah, Dale Allison, I think, makes the connection that he sees um, he sees that text being evoked. So oh, that, interesting. This, that Matthew yeah. sees this as the, as the wings of, um, of uh, Jesus at the fringes the of the very edges kind of thing. 
right. Yeah, and Dale Ellison is very attentive to Old Testament connections right. in the Gospel. Matthew, a Matthean scholar who, um, yeah, the Jewish roots of Matthew are very important in his work. So, and I love his work. It's just yeah, stuff. yeah. So we interviewed him for the introduction to Matthew. So Uh, listeners, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, you can go back and listen and you can hear him talk about the importance of Old Testament connections throughout the book of Matthew. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The other, I mean, yeah. The other thing about, (laughs) about some of the characters, I mean, we have, we have like, so we have this, this Roman, right. uh, Centurion. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we have the, I mean, another, the other characters are the, are the demons, right? Who? Yes, it's so, chapter eight at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the kind of bizarre characters who also. I mean, you mentioned the, the motif of Jesus's authority, right, yes. in all these different realms, right? So he has authority to heal. Um, but the, at the Roman centurion is a Gentile recognizing Jesus's yeah. authority, which is yeah. interesting, mm-hmm. uh, as the. That's the, he's the son of David. He's the, he's the king of Israel. And so you have a Gentile, rec- in a way, recognizing the authority yes. of, of the Davidic king. But then uh, th- it's interesting that the demons have to ask permission, <laughs> right, to go into the herd of pigs. Yeah, I mean, they know they're in trouble, right? And so they're trying to figure out their best route. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is. It is such an, and again, in Mark, we have an extension, it's uh, extended story. And this is but shortened, but you still hear that theme of authority. And they, they recognize language, son of God, you mm. know, and how exactly that term functions in first century Judaism. They, they clearly have an awareness of, of his distinctiveness mm. through his authority and through that language. Yes. So since we brought up demons, yeah. uh, let's talk about <laughs> the connections between demons and sickness in these chapters. And really, mm-hmm. we see this elsewhere in the gospel as well. I mean, a couple of examples, 816, it says that evening they brought to him many who were possessed with demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and cured all who were sick. Now there's got an interesting connection yes. of the two mm-hmm. ideas there. 933, and when the demon had been cast out, the one who had been mute spoke. So what's going on here? Why are exorcism Mm -hmm. and healing frequently tied together? And related to this is a question that our students will sometimes ask us, or you may encounter uh, in churches, can Christians be possessed by demons? And should the church be doing exorcisms? Can these passages help us think about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes in our modern context, you know, in Western modern context, these texts land, I mean, they're interesting, but you're like, wait, how do I apply that? I think it's just a great right. question. Um, I would say first that Matthew, um, his umbrella, uh, if you would, if you uh, might call it that, is healing, and demon possession fits within that, or demonic oppression fits within that. We see that in chapter 4, uh, verse 23, 24, uh, the big three things Jesus does in verse 23 are the um, look at them in the right order here, teaching, proclaiming the good news or preaching and healing. But then we hear news about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who are ill with various diseases of suffering, um, severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, et cetera. So it, it becomes one part of the healing work of Jesus. And we hear how often a Matthew will um, talk about somebody who's demon possessed and say, Jesus healed them. You know, so that the language of healing is really the prominent language. Jesus says healer is the prominent category. So in chapter 12, 22, then they brought him a demon-possessed man, and Jesus healed him. You know, so that's often how Matthew frames it. If you go to Mark, um, you know, the first, the first thing Jesus does in terms of his 
uh, authority and power is cast out a demon. You know, in, in Matthew, the first uh, um, power encounter that happens is a healing. So you have this sense that Matthew really understands um, the demonic to be under the category of illness, but not, mm. not necessarily coterminous, you know, like somehow every illness is caused by a demon. That's does not, Matthew doesn't support right. that kind of view because it's kind of this bigger picture of healing. And one way that sickness, which is a power in, you know, in the first century world and understanding, I mean, illness, sickness isn't always, it's not, or it's not surmountable frequently. You know, it's this thing that right. kills people. You know, sickness right, moves right. very quickly to death. So it's sort of a power. And one part of that is demonic um, position or activity. So it really does heal kind of as the umbrella. Uh, but that still kind of raises this question of, so how do we understand demonic kinds of things today? How, do, how should mm -hmm. we understand um, we have a section in um, Kyle and I, Kyle's a theologian. So when, as we wrote Matthew, the two horizons, we have yeah. a section in our chapter on reading Matthew pastorally. And we talk about Ma uh, Matthew and healing. So we talk mm -hmm. more about this subject in depth, if anyone wants to read it. Um, and I think it's not a sort of necessarily easy question to answer all of how does this work out today. But I would say, I don't think that the gospel of Matthew, for example, would support the idea that Believers in Jesus, those under Jesus's power and compassion and authority, um, could be possessed by uh, the demonic. Um, as, you know, but you can talk about, of course, people who are suffering deeply in all sorts of ways. Um, but that would be kind of my sort of general read. But it is, um, again, important i think to say we live in a world where we have uh, psychological explanations for a variety of things we have we need to wrestle with those kinds of engagements without saying that you know the demonic is just a silly old idea you know there's evil in this world um and whether you you know whether people view that sort of personally that there's some sort of personal engagement with some um uh, demonic um or different ways i think we need to grapple with the reality of profound evil um yeah. and then realize that jesus is bigger than that evil it's there's never a like even well there's evil and there's jesus and they're fighting it out now there is a sense where jesus right. is bringing all things under his authority for Corinthians right. 15 but there it's not an even battle we know right. who right. wins and who's winning that's right. the christian and, message right. and, and i so think that's just... the message of the gospels yeah, and so to say that some like someone is possessed by a demon uh, would, I mean, am I right to say this, that that would be saying that they are under the authority of demons and not under the authority of Christ. Is that right? Those are kind of exclusive uh, powers yeah, in that way? Yeah, you can think of it in maybe Paul's realms language. You know, we have the realm of the, the present evil age, but that's passing away for Christians. So already right. we're in the new creation. So um yeah, thinking about it in terms of Jesus' authority, I think is really helpful. Yeah. His authority is, it has authority over all things, and yet the mop-up, you know, the kind of the, um, my professor Rob, Bob Stein would talk about it in terms of D-Day. The invasion has happened, the definitive invasion. There's a lot of mop-up after D-Day right. for World War II to, to be completed, but it was sort of the decisive victory, and he talks about that as kind of the Jesus entering history and now being Lord of all. Right. Jesus right. being Lord of all doesn't mean everything's neat and tidy yet. Mm, yeah. But 
things, we know the trajectory, we know the final word and the final ending to the story. And right. that brings great hope, I think. Yeah. So these demons, the, the, the demons that ask Jesus, you know, to go into the pigs, right? And Jesus sends them into the pigs. So is there something uh, particularly significant about Jesus sending the demons into the pigs? Yeah, it, um, it, they are unclean animals, and they're kind of, in some ways, the epitome of unclean. I mean, um, non-Jews know that that Jews did not eat pork. I mean, it was kind of a, a you know a known quantity in the first century world. So um, it is a case that they're unclean, and they're you know they're already in a you know they're in um, in the, among the tombs, unclean as well. Right, the dead are right, unclean. Right. You know, so the Jewish category of unclean. Is heightened okay. in this story, so I think that their their pigs, you know, kind of fits this whole. This is a very <laughs> unclean. And Mark will use the language not of demon possessed, but impure spirits. Mm-hmm. So impurity shows up even in the mm-hmm. language in the longer story in Mark, in terms right. of how these spirits are described. So I think that's part of it uh, okay. to kind of really say this is this is the place. Jewish people don't want to be here. I mean, yeah, it's not yeah. that Jewish people couldn't interact with the dead. They had to take care of those around them, their sure. family members who died. But, you know, the, the need for cleansing and Jesus just is there and he's taking mm. care of. The, so his authority, I think, is really heightened over all of life, mm. including the unclean. Interesting. Jesus, um, though he is a law-abiding, Torah-abiding Jew, um, is not a, afraid of a ritual sort of impurity that you know, that can be cleansed because he is the one who cleanses. He is the one who brings up his authority to bear. And what do you, what do you make of the response of the people? They beg him to leave, right? I mean, I would think yeah. like, Hey, he just cast out the demons out of this guy who's been possessed yeah. and the dominated poor, by the demons. Like, the poor swineherds, I, uh, they've just gone bankrupt that's because true, they yeah. lost all of their yeah. yeah, that's a very good point. And yeah. And, and the different responses that are kind of just introduced in chapters eight and nine will be really heightened in 11 and 12. We'll start to see that there's, even though this one is coming and bringing the kingdom, not everybody is welcoming. And I think it's kind of an important motif that gets heightened here. Mm. And yeah, they just want him to go away from the whole region. He's going to kind of gone across uh, into the the region of the um, Gadarenes and he just back into sort of fully Jewish territory after this. Um, So the response is important. Well, let's switch over to chapter 10, and we'll actually begin at 935. Uh, in 935, Jesus sees that the crowds are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he tells his disciples to pray that God would send out laborers. And then in chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles, who are presumably the laborers. Um, what is the mission that Jesus gives the 12 apostles, and how does it relate to or mirror, extend Jesus' own ministry? Well, I had mentioned already that the two of the three things, teaching, preaching, healing, two of them show up in chapter 10, preaching, healing, and, and exorcisms even right at the beginning, they're they receive authority to drive out impure spirits. Um, they aren't given teaching ministry. And we might say, well, there, what's not a big difference between teaching and preaching? But Jesus has been explicitly teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. His teachings are, in Matthew, kind of centered in chapters 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount, and four other great discourses of Jesus that show up in 10, 13, 18, 24 through 25. And it's only at the end of the gospel, 28, 19 through 20, that we hear that, 
the 12 or now the 11 and, you know, by extension, the church is to Mm -hmm. go and make disciples baptizing and teaching them all that I have commanded. So this sense that Jesus's teachings need to be heard, wrestled with, understood before they're handed off to the 12. So I think it is important that in this mission, that the, the commission that they receive, the healing and preaching the kingdom, announcing the good news, the kingdom mm-hmm. is arriving, uh, is the focus rather than teaching as well. Um, one of the interesting pieces that Jesus says in five through six, he limits their mission to the lost sheep of Israel, or lost sheep of the house of Israel, which is something in 1524 we'll hear Jesus say about his own ministry. He has come for the lost sheep of Israel or of the house of Israel. So there's this coherence between his ministry to Israel, to the Jewish people, prior to the Great Commission, which then is open for Gentiles. And yet we see these Gentiles, a few Gentiles show up in Jesus's Galilean ministry, Roman centurion, but also Canaanite woman in chapter 15. Lots of connections between those two texts, lots of similarities. Mm-hmm. They both have to press a little bit mm-hmm. for a healing to happen, I would say, um, mm-hmm. in 10, or excuse me, 8, 7. I think a question is there. Shall I come and heal him? Mm-hmm. So there, there's this sense that, the, the, you know, first to the Jew, then the Gentile. Paul would say it that way, I think, in Romans. Uh, and we see that kind of coherence between Jesus's ministry and um, the, the 12. So maybe I'll stop there and say that, that, you know, those are really important connections. Sure. In uh, chapter 10, verse 13, Jesus says, um, or verse 12, as you enter the house, greet it. And then verse 13, mm-hmm. if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. What What does that mean to let your peace come upon it or yeah. return to you? Yeah, it, it's language in the Jewish world of reception or welcome. And, and Jesus is saying, you know, if you have a welcome, then you can embrace that house and, you know, your peace, you know, your blood, the blessing that they bring, the announcement of the kingdom, all the things that the disciples will be announcing will benefit that household. But if, if they don't welcome you, then you're free to leave. You know, you, you go okay. where you're welcome, the message. And this is part of that theme of um, the message isn't going to be received by everybody. You get this little hint that there's going to be welcome, and for those people, the, the peace, the um, the reception, all the okay. blessings. And, yeah, because, I mean, the shalom language from the Old Testament, as you know, is a very rich kind of, yeah. it's not just, you know, the 60s or 70s peace thing or whatever <laughs> it is. You know, it's, it's, it's this rich kind of well-being and restorative language. So um, it's it's significant that here there's this, even the disciples experience this sort of divide. Some right. will welcome them, some will not. And and speaking of that divide, verses 32 and 33, we see everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my father in heaven. And that language of denial immediately makes me think of Peter's Mm. famous denials later in the Gospels. Uh, Is there a fit here between that event and this? And if so, what are we supposed to think about that? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea to, to um, you know, because, of course, Peter is restored. You know, this sounds definitive forever. You know, once I do one or the other or, you know, so so I think it is um, helpful to hear it narratively or narratively, mm-hmm. you know, that um, restoration is always possible. Um, and 
um, acknowledging Jesus is fundamental to being a believer in Jesus. I think both of those are true. So holding that kind of tension, a lot of the sayings here and other places in Matthew are, you know, aphorisms, these short sayings that, um, you know, it's, there's a binary, this or that, this or that. And, but the story helps us hear that Jesus stays with his disciples, even as they're people of little faith, even as they desert mm-hmm. him, you know, there's this sense of the narrative helps us to hear and understand how these binaries are true and that God is the God of forgiveness and restoration. So I think it kind of helps us to just hear maybe the subtlety of how we parse these things out and how we talk about them with Christians mm-hmm. and with others. Now, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, actually, throughout these chapters. In chapter 8, 20, uh, he says, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then in chapter 9, verse 6, we read but when he's healing the paralytic, but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he goes and he uh, heals the paralytic. And then in 1023, uh, he says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I tell you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the son of man comes. What, how do you understand this phrase? This is yeah. it a title of the son of man. And what, what does he mean by his, the coming of the son of man? What's yeah. he referring to there? Uh, it's such a big topic. People write full <laughs> monographs on Son of Man. Right. Um, we know it is Old Testament language, you know, Ben Adam or something mm-hmm. like that. My Hebrew folks can correct me. Um, so, uh, but, you know, Ezekiel uses Son of Man as this sort of generic Ezekiel standing in for the people often doing these things like right. standing on his head or, you know, I mean, he does all sorts of parables right now. <laughs> yes. You know. Um, yeah. So you have this sense, is it functioning? It, sometimes I think it functions that way, just simply as this sort of um, uh, a little elusive, it's Jesus talking about himself or not. We know that every time Son of Man is used, it's in the mouth of Jesus. We know as mm-hmm. we read the Gospels. Right. But the hearers don't know that. I mean, the hearers on the ground in the, in the story, in, in the actual ministry of Jesus, hear Son of Man and think representative of Israel. I mean, you know, is it someone else or is it himself? So I think it has this sort of level of ambiguity, at least at the story okay. level. Um but Son of Man, for Matthew, um, is often demystified or clarified through, I think, its allusion to um, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where the Son of Man, because he'll use this phrase, not just Son of Man, and he uses a phrase in chapter 10, as you mentioned, um, and one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. That whole idea is very mm. important to Matthew and R.T. France or Dick France is really explain that well in his commentary, I think, because the light, you know, the picture in Daniel is not coming this way, which is what we think of, of the coming of the son of man right? into the throne room, vindication of the son of man in the heavenly realm. It's his vindication. You know, it's his exaltation vindication. And that's how I think we should hear 10, um, 23, 23. but also sixteen twenty eight, And in chapter 24, the, the large, the, the the longest, I think, citation, if you want to say, from Daniel. So this idea that Jesus is often speaking of his vindication with that elusive language, especially we see it in chapter twenty-four because coming erkomai, the generic term, which is what we hear in Daniel, which is what here we hear in ten, and is distinguished from parousia, a coming 
which is the return of Jesus. So Matthew talks about Jesus's return or reappearing, but with parousia in very select places in chapter 24, okay. rather than this other language that's a little more general, which is about vindication. So I think Matthew is saying here, truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the vindication of the Son of Man, which you could say happens at his resurrection, at the fall of the temple. It's also okay. what happens at his final parousia. I mean, it's it's got multiple windows, as okay. Dick France says. Um, so I would just recommend reading his stuff on this topic if you're really interested, any of your readers interested in this whole how is Son of Man functioning and how does Daniel 7 kind of show up in Matthew and what does it illuminate? Mm, right. But if people are a little confused about this, we really can't blame them because what we see no. in the last chapter we're going to look at, uh, chapter 11, we see John the Baptist is confused about who Jesus <laughs> exactly. is. Right. So uh, verse three, uh, we see, well, John is in prison in verse two and he sends word uh, to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? So John seemed to understand earlier when he encountered Jesus oh, in yeah. chapter three, uh, what's going on here? Why is he now confused? It's a great moment. And my students, when we walk through Matthew, are like, wait, John says this here. I mean, you know, it isn't probably the most preached on text I've ever heard. Um, you want to go to chapter three and you hear about you know, John the Baptist coming, looking like Elijah and, mm -hmm. you know, doing his, um, uh, you know, uh, um, basically the indictment of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the brood of vipers. I mean, we, we know that text, but we often don't go, wow, that he knows what's going on. Right. But we don't come to this other text. So I think what helps, one thing that helps me hear what's going on is Jesus's response, which is go back and report to John, what you've seen here, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. Isaianic language. These are allusions to Isaiah all over the place. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me, which is, I think, a kind of a implicit way or maybe a riddle-like way of saying, you'll know who I am by what I do. And of course, mm -hmm. all of these things that are in verse five are things he's just been doing in chapters eight and nine. So it's like, this is what I do. But these aren't necessarily part of what everyone expected the Messiah to do. We can look at Psalm of uh, Solomon 17, which is a Jewish text outside of the Old Testament canon, written in the early, uh, right before the you know turn of the centuries or whatever in the first century BC, BCE, and it talks about how the Messiah will come into Jerusalem and kick the Gentiles out, cleanse the city. In other words, um, restore Judaism, restore the kingdom. Um, politically, and now that's not just political, because it's always got more than political in Jewish thought, but it's certainly this sort of political move. And this is not what we read in verse 5 of chapter 11. Healing, that wasn't necessarily a messianic task. So and you, if you read back in what John is saying in chapter 3, he's not talking about healings. He's talking about judgment and you know, now judgment on the Jews that they think is going to come to the Romans if they don't shape up too, you know, but it is sure. a sense of judgment and Jerusalem cleansed. I mean, he doesn't use Jerusalem exactly, but he's not that far away from Jerusalem as mm -hmm. he's announcing these things. So this strong sense of judgment for Jesus's ministry is not happening. And in fact, what you see in Matthew is that judgment will be a part of Jesus's task, but it's in the time of the parousia. It's that second 
not yet part of the kingdom. The, the now of the kingdom in Matthew is about restoration, healing, wholeness, announcement of the kingdom. And so, yes, we start to see a divide in terms of people who receive or don't. But the judgment is not until he announces judgment, but he does not enact judgment. And John seems mm. to think he's going to be enacting judgment. And he's dallying around in Galilee instead of getting to Jerusalem, getting to work like all the messiahs would be messiahs did show up in Jerusalem, try to overthrow the Romans. Now, and John the Baptist's response kind of nicely, actually, I think nicely ties into this motif of Jesus's authority and the different kinds of responses we've been seeing throughout Mm -hmm. uh, previous chapters, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Uh, John, so John's response is kind of like unsure, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. He speaks for whether the reader or the various characters, both and, and and this is where you know in I see cha- chapter eleven verse two kind of starting the new section in the Galilean mystery eleven two through sixteen twenty, where the question is all about who is Jesus, right? And and it's heightened by the responses to Jesus, right? People think now, he's he, oh, he's a he casts out demons by the prince of demons. That's a very different read, chapter 12, <laughs> than John, than the disciples, than the Canaanite woman who says, son of David, and mm. you can heal my daughter, and I'll keep on pressing until you do. Mm. Very different responses. Mm. Now, the, the description of John the Baptist here is interesting. He's likened to Elijah. So we read in verse 11, truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Uh, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John came. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Let anyone with ears listen. What's, what's yeah. the deal with aligning him with Elijah? We've already seen in chapter three that John the Baptist looks and eats like Elijah. In other words, we have a second Kings kind of illusion. We're meant to hear the Elijah connection. And mm. I think John meant to enact it personally. I don't think he just happened to eat locusts and look like, I mean, like he's dressing like his old Testament counterpart. And what really makes sense of this is Malachi four, five through six, which are the last couple of verses of Malachi, where we hear God saying, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. We hear some of this cited in Luke, but I think it's it's the kind of implicit underlay for much of the Gospels that this one like Elijah will come right before the time of the kingdom when everything, you know, uh, in Jewish thought, the kingdom is not a two-stage kind of affair, which is really the New Testament picture already, not yet. Mm-hmm. Jesus comes and brings, inaugurates the kingdom, but won't be con- consummated till the very end at his parousia but in jewish thought it's sort of um two age but one stage you know and that judgment renewal restoration elijah right beforehand kind of announcing it that's john um so i think matthew wants us to hear that's john jesus wants us to hear that's john so um that's why that's why john's so important but also not not in the kingdom yet he's the one right before the kingdom Mm because strange words that we hear that not one among those born of women verse 11 there has not risen anyone greater than john the baptist yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he that's not a statement of value and it's a statement of time it's like fear in the kingdom john 
was beheaded right before it all started, you know, because Jesus is inaugurated the kingdom. So it's about a temporal mm-hmm. um, kind of value versus John's not important. John's terribly important, but he doesn't, he announces a kingdom and chapter 14, we'll hear that he was beheaded. It's kind of a flashback. Right. Now you had said some of John the Baptist's confusion was the lack of judgment that we see in Jesus. But we do see later in this chapter that Jesus does pronounce judgment on yes. cities that do not respond favorably to his deeds. So in verse 21, for example, yep. we hear, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But even this is somewhat conflicted because in verse 25, we then hear Jesus thanking the Father for having hidden these things from the wise and understanding. So how do we hold these together? On the one hand, judgment for not responding, but on the other hand, God intended to hide these things. Mm. How can you be culpable for not responding to things that were hidden from, from you? Yes, and I, and I would say I want to point to 22 uh, that concludes that piece, but I tell you it'll be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the Day of Judgment. See, Jesus announces judgment, but it's not the Day of Judgment because judgment is part of the kingdom that awaits that final day. Because okay. there's this time for response that's built into this now of the kingdom. So I just want to say yeah. he announces judgment, but he doesn't enact a judgment. He doesn't right. come and say the, the, the great white throne is not here yet. And again, right. in Jewish thought, it all happened at once. So right. um, so that's why I think kind of parsing out that John was expecting not just announcement of judgment. He was doing that. He thought Jesus would come and bring it. Right. That's not, that but, so, but then this question of, yeah, the culpability. Verse, yeah. Right. Right. And I think part of that is to realize that as we move into chapter 11, we're hearing a lot of um, Jewish wisdom themes like in the mm. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, that wisdom literature and the motifs of hiddenness and revelation. Mm. Um, and I think realizing that um, will keep us from doing sort of this Gnostic move, which would be saying, well, some people get it and some people don't, you know, and there's no way to move from one category to the next. That mm. would, would not be Matthew. There is both this sense of you respond and more op- opportunity is given to you. You know, this kind of sense of how you respond uh, kind of opens up more opportunities for response and the sense that God hides it from the wise, which I think in this context means the Jewish leadership, particularly in the storyline. They're the ones you'd think they would have responded. They knew back in chapter two that the the Messiah comes from Bethlehem. They they know all the answers, but they're not responding. This should be a surprise to us that we're so used to the Gospels that we don't feel the surprise then in chapter 12, particularly the Jewish leadership are going to be exactly wrong about Jesus. But that's well, not the yeah. expectation it, really for a first century Judy, Jewish audience, although they also know the story and you know, they're reading it after 30, 33 AD. But right. um, there's a sense so, of yeah. surprise. So the, the, the sense of the wisdom theme of revelation to those who least expect it, those are the disciples, those, you know, other, other Jewish people, but not the Jewish leaders. Hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, so it sounds like, uh, so on your reading, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. That there, it, it sounds like I'm following you, that you're suggesting that that what's going on here is that when you uh, fail to respond, then, more, then the identity and revelation of who the son is 
is hidden from you? Is that it's kind of contingent on an initial response? Is that right? Yeah, and actually ongoing. I mean, we, you know, we make decisions. I mean, if we might individualize it, which I don't think Matthew really wants me to do, but that's, you know, uh, to say in my own life, right. um, if I choose to kind of reject what I'm seeing in Jesus, I'm going to, you know, it's going to move me down a path that's going to move right, me farther right. from being able to hear and respond. But um, I, I do in, in Gospels of Stories in the chapter on narrative theology, I do use, I use this example of hiddenness, revelation, um, mm-hmm. who's chosen, who's not, you know, some of those kind of big questions that yeah. people go to Matthew and find answers to. I want to, I kind of want to read it across the narrative. Cause even when you get to chapter 13 and the disciples are given special revelation, which in chapter 13 is the, the explanation of parables. Mm-hmm. Crowds don't get that. Even then, they don't understand fully because they keep on right. misunderstanding parables all the way through chapter 15. Right. So you, you have to kind of, with the narrative theology, it doesn't let you just kind of sit only with verse 11 or chapter 11 verses 25 and following, even though those, those are important verses, but they kind of speak to this whole narrative way of understanding that kind of theme of what well, we might say predestination, free will. I mean, Again, those are categories I don't want to lay right on top of Matthew, but Matthew is speaking to those realities, absolutely. So how right. do we hear kind of this this sense that um, Revelation is happening to all sorts of people? Jesus walks in the room and Revelation is happening. So all sorts of people right. are seeing the revealed son of David, but they're not always yeah. responding the same way. And Matthew's trying to explain why that is. And it's not always just going internal for Matthew. He's talking mm-hmm. about realities that are mapped out to communities. Hence the judgment of towns. All those people in all those towns weren't judged, right? I mean, they, they, some of them were responding very clearly to Jesus in faith. So how do we kind of right. sort out this communal versus individual way of understanding these issues right. as well? Yeah, I think what's that what's interesting that you said earlier, too, is that we have precedent for woes of judgment being proclaimed like in the Old Testament, right, mm-hmm. by the prophets that are kind of warning you so that you will then repent. Yeah. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. And you I could you could see how that could be functioning here. Right. Jesus pronouncing these woes as kind of warnings. So come on, get it together, guys. Let's <laughs> let's repent. And if you continue in that, then the identity of the son continues to be hidden, which is which is what you have coming on later. I think that that's a really interesting sure. way of reading that. And I'll translate um, um, the, the whole language, the OII in the Greek with how dire it will be. That's how I've done it in my commentary. No, it's, I don't have my own translation out there, you know, but sure. I have a translation in my Matthew commentary. And I right. thought I want to really heighten this sense that he's announcing judgment. Woe can sound like, I'm going to beat you over the head right now. Maybe or, you know, it's, it's, it's more vague, right? right? But, Boy, I can, how dire it will be. It, right, it's an right, announcement right. of judgment. So I, I find that helpful to go, yeah, Jesus wants people to respond rightly. Right, He's giving right, them right. a chance. Yeah. Right. Now, in 1128 to 30, we have a very well-known saying. You know, it's the one that you find on placards and sewn, sewn and embroidered, you know, and all kinds of tapestries. Um, and the verse is this. Come to me, all you that are weary. This is Jesus speaking. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
what do these verses mean? What I mean, what's the easy and the gentle yoke here? <laughs> and what is the rest that Jesus is offering to people? How does this tie to what just happened, what we've just heard? It seems like yeah. it comes out of yeah. nowhere almost. Well, the way that um, I've made sense of chapter 11, and this, I mean, scholars um, will emphasize that this is really that, again, that wisdom theme that runs through this chapter. We, we hear wisdom motifs like hiddenness, revelation. We also mm-hmm. hear that Jesus himself is wisdom. 11.2, John, uh, who was in prison, heard about the deeds, the erga of the Messiah, the Messiah's deeds. And then we hear about wisdom's deeds in verse 19. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Mm-hmm. So we have this connection as an ecclesio or an envelope or a bookend that helps us hear that the the deeds of Jesus are the deeds of wisdom. So then um, we hear, again, these themes of judgment and revelation and hiddenness. And then in 28 through 30, language the language of these verses just drips with Old Testament wisdom language, whether from Proverbs. We can also go to the um, some Jewish wisdom books from later times to hear just the language, um, Sirach, for example, or I'm sorry, yeah, wisdom. So Sirach 51, listen to this. It's some of the same Greek terms. Put your neck under her yoke. That is wisdom's yoke, um, Zygos. And let your soul, suke, receive instruction. Same language as in this text. It is mm-hmm. to be found, that found language close by. See with your eyes that I have labored but little and found much Myself, much peace or serenity, Anapau's rest. I mean, all of that language is the same language we hear. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not that Matthew is necessarily reliant on Sirach. It's, the, it's, it's that this is the language of wisdom. So Jesus, as wisdom embodied, is saying, come to me. Because um, the only way the Torah is a heavy burden is um, if, like the Jewish leaders, put it on people and then don't help them at all. Don't lift a finger to help them. 23 verses 1 and 2. It's not that the Torah itself is a burden. It's that um, you need sort of the embodiment of wisdom to help you live in line with Jesus. So learn from me, not from the Torah, even though it's not antithetical to the Torah, but learn from me. There's this embodiment that's so powerful and rich. To learn from Jesus is just a wonderful theme to kind of think about how do we learn from Jesus take his yoke upon us it's a light yoke it's not a burdensome way of life even though you read across Matthew you go wow that there's a lot of things for me to think about doing but it's always invigorated by this God with us Jesus is God with us Jesus has wisdom Jesus is the one we learn from it's this highly relational context in which Mm. we hear yes be peacemakers Mm. or whatever other piece you hear that's important yeah and to reinforce this in the next chapter chapter 12 we get in 42 uh jesus comparing himself to solomon in his wisdom Mm -hmm. but then saying something greater than solomon is here right so his supremacy to solomon who would have been associated Mm -hmm. with wisdom yeah the very wisdom of god that solomon pointed to now is here right mm -hmm. yeah well, thank you for walking us through these chapters, these four chapters, uh, and all that's there. <laughs> um, we uh, like to finish our interviews with a blurb from our guests. You know, this is that genre that biblical scholars seem to have perfected. So is there anything that you could recommend to us and our listeners 
Uh, it could be a book, uh, but it could be anything that you've just come across recently and you think other people might find helpful. Mm. Yeah, I'm on with this, I'm so bad at this, but um, I'm going to suggest having just talked about um, this whole idea of learning from Jesus. Um, I really, I really have appreciated Luke Timothy Johnson's book, Living Jesus. Mm. Um, Luke Timothy Johnson is a, a scholar, Catholic scholar, writes tomes on Paul and the Gospels. But his little book, Living Jesus, is this kind of amazing idea of what does it mean to have a Lord that's not uh, a teacher and Lord who's not just dead and gone. So we follow his teachings, but who's living. So we actually follow him in the way of mm. wisdom. You know, we seek to follow where Jesus leads. And I, um, so a, a book. Not surprisingly, I'd pick a book maybe, but <laughs> it, it is more kind of a, it might be a devotional reflection, high end, because it's a biblical scholar, but living Jesus, that kind of um, thinking about what does it mean to follow a living Lord? He really mm. presses into that, which is a lovely theme, I think, that fits at least Matthew 11, if not the rest of Matthew. Thank you. Well, thank you, Janine, for uh, for that recommendation and for walking us through these four chapters, <laughs> Matthew, Matthew chapters 8 through 11. Um, and thank you, listeners, for listening. Uh, if you would like to learn more about the other episodes and the other uh, scholars that are guiding us through the book of Matthew, uh, you can find us at thetwotestaments.com, where you can subscribe to our uh, mailing list. And you can find us whenever, wherever you uh, listen to and download podcasts. And if you wouldn't mind to go on there and give us your best five-star rating, we would appreciate that. And I'm sure that our peace will rest upon you. <laughs> Thanks again. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zelder, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion.